This is the Deep Dive with Brooke Spector. Investigative conversations about issues that impact our lives. Be curious. Friday mornings at 9 a.m. Only on 101.9 High FM. Good morning, and this is Brooke Spector, and this is indeed the Deep Dive. And today we're, we're delighted to have an old friend and expert on many things, uh, Greg Mills, to join us. Greg uh, has had a, he had a long association with the South Africa Institute of International Affairs, and now with the Brenthurst Foundation. And I think pretty much any time there is an explosive international uh, circumstance, a war, a conflict, there's Greg reporting from it, contemplating the implications of it and thinking through the consequences. And not surprisingly, he's been in and out of Ukraine and written about it. And this, of course, relates to the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Uh, and just coincidentally, on Thursday, he had an article at our Daily Maverick online publication about South Africa and Russia and a trade show uh, of, I guess, what we would have to call dubious propriety and unusual principles involved. Greg, it's a pleasure and it's a delight and indeed a bit of an honor to have you join us this morning for a discussion. Now, what? tell me a little bit about what provoked your article and why it is so important to draw the line on principle uh, about a trade show like this. Uh, thanks very much, Brooks. It's uh, very good to see you and to chat to you again. And um, uh, of course, it's a very interesting year that we're living in, a lot happening. Uh, there's inflation, there's uh, increasing amounts of debt out there in the world, and um, there seems to be a sort of a, a loosening of, of what we have come to expect as sort of degrees of a rules-based system and of controls that we understand. And, and I guess that's the, the motivation overall for myself becoming engaged with Ukraine, both from the question of understanding really what was happening, what's in it for Africa, in terms of some of the implications. And then since the world is a global village, you know, what Africa should be doing and what Africa should be saying. We always, I guess, berate those telling Africa what to do. There's a degree of resistance understand, understandably to that, both from because of questions of principle, but also given past histories. But we should also you know, have a voice in international affairs that's constructive and positive. And to do that, we need to really understand facts on the ground. So I first went to Ukraine, I actually was visiting Ukraine and Poland, uh, right when the war broke out, and then went back in, in March uh, to the west of Ukraine, and then back in April, May to Kiev and in its surrounds. And then last week, I was in Odessa. And the reason why I visited Odessa was really because that's the principal Black Sea port in terms of being the hub for a whole variety of ports for the export of Ukrainian goods, but particularly Ukrainian foodstuffs and commodities. And the three ports in the, in the Odessa region, uh, Chernomask, Ozai, uh, Yushni, sorry, and, uh, and Odessa together account for some 200 million tons of annual capacity. And we really need to find ways to try and get those flows going again because the impacts on Africa are so considerable. 
And that's really been the theme of much of my recent work. But, you know, it, it doesn't exclude other commentariat. And uh, just like many people, I was very surprised that the, the South Africans are, are hosting, the South African government is collaborating uh, with a, a Russian agency and two of its sub-agencies in putting on this engineering show, because it's really an engineering show, uh, in a week's time in Santon. And I looked at, in the article in The Maverick today with my colleague Ray Hartley, looked at what this means for South Africa. And I think there's two sets of issues, and they, they're issues that cut across the Ukrainian peace altogether. And uh, the first one is really what it means in terms of principle, what it means in terms of, of our role as a global citizen, as South Africans. Uh, and I think that uh, my view is there are very important issues at stake with Ukraine around international law and sovereignty. And uh, we should not uh, simply ignore those because they have grave implications potentially for Africa. And that, of course, has been pointed out by a number of people, not least Kenya's ambassador to the United Nations, Martin Kimani. And I think that the, I cite the article of uh, Tommy Coe, um, the veteran Singaporean diplomat, a region that you know very well, Brooks. Uh, Professor Coe, you know, really, I think, puts it in a, in a, in a very, I think, uh, um, clear manner, where he says, you know, this is a, a war about Ukraine's survival and its independence, its right to self-determination, its right to choose its own way forward, not just to be a surrogate of Russia's and have the Russians choose for them how they want to position themselves in international politics and how they want to position themselves in terms of choosing their own domestic system of government and representation. And that this really is, is, although it's been postulated as being a war between authoritarianism or autocracy and democracy, that's really irrelevant. Uh, this is a war really for survival. And it's, it's clear that Ukraine is not fighting for the West or anybody else for that matter. It's fighting for itself. And Ukrainians are fighting for their right, right of self-determination. And these are very important principles. They're principles around international law. They're principles around which the United Nations is constructed, the whole post-war-based order has been constructed, and their key principles in Africa, as it struggles to form particularly states out of multiple nations. And in that, I think we also have to avoid very dangerous ground around whether you know, Ukraine should be ceding ground to Russia and territory to Russia to be able to create peace because authoritarians have a very uh, poor track record as in being appeased, and we should support them in their struggles. So on the, on the one level, you know, it's about dealing with issues of principle and why we should be very careful in our relationship. At another level, it's really about self-interest and whether such events as the one in Santon in a week's time are really in the self-interest of South Africa, given the sanctions regime against Russia uh, and given the, the implications potentially for uh, continued relationships with uh, some of our, our larger trading partners. A lot of people will simply say, you know, we should try and get out of the international community as much as we can and be highly transactionalist about it. I would argue that that has many dangers, just like we would not expect people to be transactionist with the apartheid government. We should be very careful about being transactionist with certain regimes around the world. Another level, just finally, is, is, is shows up some of the real grave dangers in, in institutions like the BRICS, which on paper appear to be you know, hugely potentially powerful and increasingly so with China's growing economic weight. But because 
they lack common values between the membership are problematic in very many ways. We can do, we can do the BRICS discussion uh, at great length. And I, I've been something of a cynic over uh, Jim McNeil's uh, bond selling idea since it began. But I, I want to turn back a little bit to this engineering trade show question insofar as it has national government backing or support or endorsement here, which I assume it has, and the way in which that does or does not undercut the government's express position of neutrality in the conflict in Ukraine as a result of the Russian invasion. What do you think about that? How, how do you view that question? Well, I know I don't know the extent of the, the government's support for this. I can only presume that having seen the official invitation and conference bump around it, that it does have the blessing of the South African government. But just to, to turn immediately to the issue of mediation, I mean, you know, I, I think this idea that, uh, and, and, and I say this as a South African, because South, Africa's, South Africans didn't have international mediation to end apartheid. That was one of the key principles. There were outsiders who helped, and they helped most notably by putting pressure on the various parties to go to the negotiating table. And they, of course, applied that pressure through sanctions. They applied that pressure through all manner of means. And there was facilitation, undoubtedly, in that regard. But the actual mediation, the actual you know, negotiations were done between South Africans. And somehow there's this notion out there, and it's a very South African notion, it's a mythologization of our own history, that you know we somehow have to play a part in negotiating between Ukraine and Russia. Actually, Ukraine is quite capable of negotiating for itself. Uh, where we want to play a role is when the Ukrainian position is not as our position is, you know, it's not seen to be cowed by Russia. And we, we somehow think that that then should involve us in a mediation process. And I, I still to this day don't know where the idea that South Africa should be a mediator in the war comes from. It didn't come from the Ukrainians, and I don't believe it came from the Russians. President Ramaphosa very vaguely referred to a third party media, you know, who, who'd asked them to to become involved. I don't know whether uh, he was talking to his own constituencies or whether he was talking to outsiders or whether he was talking in Africa. They've been very unspecific about it. But really, mediation only works if both parties want it to happen. And the Ukrainians seem to have a pretty clear idea about what they want to get out uh, of any sort of peace process. So and they haven't given a mandate to anybody in this regard. They haven't given a mandate to the Americans. They haven't given a mandate to to the Europeans. They, they're quite clearly capable of negotiating on their own behalf. So undermine this process or not, I think, is, is largely irrelevant because there is no process. I mean, it's a bit like someone always saying, you know, we're going to mediate in the Israeli-Palestinian process. Well, maybe the Palestinians want that, but the Israelis certainly don't. So to be a mediator, you have to be wanted. And we're clearly not. Uh, it's hard to offer your negotiation possibilities to the guy busy breaking into your house that presupposes uh, that there's an equality or an equivalence between the break-in person and the broken-in person. And uh, I do note that the idea that somehow South Africa is going to negotiate its way to peace in Ukraine seems to have disappeared on the international discussion. I, I haven't seen anybody mention it for weeks now. It's almost as if they have accepted the idea that they're uh, their engagement and involvement really isn't wanted at this point. 
Well, I think one of the key things about being a mediator, if that's what the parties want you to be, and like I said, there's, there's very key questions about that, is that you need to be seen to be even-handed. And one of the problems in our negotiating uh, role with uh, regard to Israel-Palestine is that we weren't. And certainly one of the problems with um, Russia and Ukraine is that we are certainly not seen to be uh, even-handed, even though we have preferred to abstain in the United Nations. And even though we uh, say that we, we don't want to get involved in this conflict, conferences like this in Santon, where we um, you know, are maybe not co-hosting, but certainly collaborating with the Russian government in putting this on in the face of widespread sanctions against the Russians, at least by 80% of the global economy, seem to indicate that you know, we're not neutral and we're not even-handed. And if anything, we've fallen off the fence onto the Russian side if we weren't there to begin with. And I think the interesting question here, Brooks, is, is why? You know, on the basis of principle, we shouldn't be on that side of the fence. On the basis of questions about freedom and democracy, unless, of course, I'm delusional in this regard, we shouldn't be on that side of the fence. On the basis of the relative size of the economies at stake here, our principal trade and investment partners mostly come from the 80% of the economies that have sided uh, with Ukraine in this regard. So is this because it's politically driven, it's ideologically driven on the basis of past friendships or on the basis of trying to project ahead to the BRICS? Or is this to do with South Africa's domestic situation that President Ramaphosa doesn't want a, another you know, ideological battle to be fought ahead of the the, the December elections in South Africa, and he's got enough on his plate, and he wants to keep the the radical wing of the party happier because of a relatively radicalized foreign policy? Or is it simply because there's some money to be made, money to be made on nuclear deals, money to be made potentially on Gazprom deals, in plugging into the South African economy? We're talking about emergency power. Is this not a, an access point for the likes of Gazprom and others to become involved? It's a wonderful revenue stream. It, It'll be the gift that will never stop giving in this in this uh, in the South African context, and that's why we're perhaps talking about emergency regulations, so we can bypass the strictures of government governance that we have established for ourselves. Or is it because you know some of the bigger funders to the ANC, the largest funder in the last year, are, are Russian Russian oligarchs? You know, it sounds conspiratorial, but when there's no clear rhyme or reason other than the conspiracy. To, um, to, uh, to sort of explain away the South African government position and seem so contrarian to the stated values of constitutionalism and interna upholding international law and the multilateral system that we supposedly stand for, then, uh, you know, why are we going down this path? So the conference, I think, is just perhaps more evidence that there's some real ickiness in our foreign affairs, just as there's real ickiness and sickness uh, in our domestic governance environment. I would add one other element to your cat to your catalog of, of, of reasons and rationalizations, and it's something I refer to as sentimental nostalgia. The evident affection that the older generation of South African leaders in, in the African National Congress and the Communist Party have to the old Soviet Union, and somehow that allegiance mentally is transferred to the current Russia, even though a fair number of such people actually got their training 
and educations in institutions which are now part of Ukraine. But the, nevertheless, the, the sentimental value seems to remain in spite of any other idea. Yeah, a sort of a Bolshevik nostalgia, one could call it, as a category of history, perhaps. You're quite right. I mean, about a third of MK operatives were trained in what is now Ukraine. But this, of course, you know, is, 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 um, misrepresents international law. The world has moved on since the Cold War. Maybe some of these leaders haven't and still want to fight those games because it provides them rather like Putin with a clear enemy and also enables people to essentially subvert domestic processes as a consequence of fighting this wider struggle and suppress domestic opposition and revert to emergency measures in inverted commas in the uh, in the process but you know the fact i think remains that we also misrepresent ukrainian history it's a remarkably ahistorical version of what the soviet union was comprised of and the history of each of these member states. U- Ukrainians, people forget. And, you know, people think, oh, this is because, you know, the denazification of Ukraine argument that was put forward by Putin, which seems to have gone, he's gone very quiet on the NATO argument that, you know, we don't want NATO on our doorstep. Well, they've got NATO on their doorstep anyway, but they don't want it on their doorstep in Ukraine. All of these uh, um, really are not sort of counterposed by arguments about, you know, Ukrainian history. They're very long and very proud history of Ukrainian identity and language. And we simply seem to have not had our eye on that ball at all and have preferred to take the Russian version of history. And, you know, the, the recent Ukrainian history, I'm not going to take you through thousands of years, but I'll take you through the last hundred years in between 1932 and 1944, I mean, effectively, the Second World War was fought and won in many respects, not, of course, entirely, but in many respects on Ukrainian soil. And if you throw in Stalin's forced collectivization and then seizure of grains from Ukraine, which resulted in the Great Famine of 32-33, where the Ukrainians claim as many as 10 million people were, were, were killed as a consequence of this or died, the international figure is somewhere between three and five. So let's just take five. And then you throw in another three million troops, Ukrainian troops working or serving the Soviet forces, and then another three and a half million citizens. That's a, you know, 10, 11, 12 million people uh, out of a population of three times that before the start of the, the Holodomor in 1932. So suffered enormously. And their notion of nation is formed around those principles. They, it gives birth to Ukraine formally in 1991. And then in 2004, a real big change happens when Yushchenko becomes, after a bitter process, including his poisoning, becomes the leader of Ukraine as a result of the Orange Revolution. Then he 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 uh, uh, serves his term, gets taken over by a pro-Russian leader, and then he is turfed out in 2014 by the Euromaidan process, the protests. And you see this growing fermenting of Ukrainian nationalism. Got absolutely nothing to do, in many respects, with with NATO and the West. It's about Ukraine, and and we simply uh, prefer to see this through our own reference points, our reference points of, of history, our reference points of the struggle in South Africa very selectively. We don't see this through Ukraine's own process of identity, 
and of nationalism. And because of that, we seem to completely either misportray deliberately or misportray because we are ill-informed the trajectory of Ukraine, which is not in some respects that of South Africa. So I would argue that, uh, yes, it may be a sort of nostalgia, but the perhaps the biggest irony in all of this is that what Putin is trying to do is essentially reestablish empire and the anti-apartheid struggle the struggle across Africa, the struggle for which the OAU was founded and liberation movements were prosecuted, was really about fighting against empire. And we seem to have deliberately overlooked that in our search for selective sentimentality. The two ironies, of course, that come out of of the invasion and the war, so far at least, you've touched on both of them uh, tangentially. One is that the, that NATO actually has been strengthened internally uh, in a cohesiveness of action and in the addition or the ongoing addition of, of two new members in, the, in Sweden and Finland and doubling Russia's boundary with NATO nations. That's an unintended consequence uh, that surely Vladimir Putin did not expect. But the other is, and it goes back to your, your, your brief discussion of Ukrainian history, uh, which we're all becoming more and more expert on as the days go by, the end result of the invasion has been for many Ukrainians, perhaps most, perhaps almost all, is a significant patriotism about being Ukrainian, as opposed to a certain ambivalence about their place in, in the universe or in Europe. And uh, they now feel themselves rather hard, well, they really well welded to the idea of joining the EU, even if that doesn't matter, that doesn't affect uh, the possibilities of ever joining NATO. The fact that trade will flow to the West, the fact that transportation will flow that way, and that people will flow that way only increases that uh, that effect. And I don't think any of these uh, effects are what Vladimir Putin planned when he first thought of the three-day war to occupy Kiev. Yeah, I think he completely, um, as George W. Bush may have said, it misunderestimated. You know, the the Ukrainian resolve. He also clearly had, uh, you know, forgotten the basics of, of of military doctrine and strategy, and what they try to do at the outset of the war. This very bold move on the airport outside uh, Kiev and a sort of a shock and awe type of attack. And they thought that Ukraine would crumple like a like a sort of house of cards and they would simply evict the leadership and install their guy uh, again. But they really didn't allow for what had happened in Ukraine, I say 2004, 2014, uh, the election of Zelensky. They hadn't counted on Zelensky himself, who's this extraordinary wartime leader. Whatever else you can say about Zelensky, I mean, he really has been able to rally the world, not just Ukrainians, behind their cause. And they didn't allow for, of course, the fact that the Ukrainians had learned the lessons of 2014 from the Russian seizure of of parts of the East and of Crimea, and they had got themselves better organized and better equipped, not as well equipped as they would like to have been, but certainly much better than they were in 2014. And then, of course, he completely overestimated Russian military capabilities. You know, I think they were living on past glories and red day parades in terms of, of their assessment of what they could do. And because they've essentially been operating in places like, you know, 
Chechnya and Syria with just about zero proper high-tech opposition. They might have had determined opposition, but nothing like the determination and resolve and organization of the Ukrainians. I think that uh, Putin, you know, completely missed uh, and his senior military advisors presumably were telling the emperor exactly what he wanted to hear. They missed what had changed in Ukraine. And then, of course, although Putin has said himself that he thought the, you know, the West was ill-disciplined and weak and fragmented, he you know, thought that the West is weak. And what he's done, I mean, pretty much in a single stroke, did he not only just eliminate COVID, at least the international focus on COVID, but Putin also strengthened the West's political resolve. Because, of course, he's a, he's a real risk. He's a clear and present danger now to yeah. the European Union and particularly to the Baltics. And he managed to do exactly what he said he was trying to avoid, which is to expand NATO, as you pointed out. And now he's got a 1,340-kilometer longer border with a very serious NATO military power in the form of Finland, uh, which is extremely tough adversary, uh, even uh, at the best of times. So, you know, on a strategic basis, Putin has has really miscalculated very badly. If, and this is the big if, unless his aim was really to simply have a new Cold War and to create a system, uh, as I indicated earlier, by which he could justify domestic repression, suppression of dissent, oppositions, on the basis of that Cold War. I have some doubts as to whether that was the case, simply because I think it's an ex post facto justification on the one hand, pretty much because he had that anyway. He was able to to suppress and has done, I think Navalny and others, uh, in, you know, in spite of the fact that um, he had no Cold War. So I think what he's done is he's, he's created a degree of European resolve uh, where he hadn't expected it to occur and he's He's given a real shock to his his uh, his military uh, and security agencies in terms of their levels of preparedness. He may, he may have really helped to change the nature of future conflict in some respects. But of course, it doesn't mean that this can't drag on for a long time. And indeed, I think what it does mean is that it's likely to drag on for a long time. And I just think I think it's important also just to bear in mind that this doesn't excuse the West from its failures. And I think that for all the Western failures, I think the most notable one is that they were very liberal, and I'm talking about NATO in particular, in terms of extending the sort of hand of friendship, but very realist in terms of actually backing the political gestures up with military means. So, you know, had NATO put a division of troops into Ukraine, probably a lot of this, well, this would never have happened because Putin would have known that they, they were serious about Terence and he wouldn't want it to have created a war with NATO, as he has said. And I think what you have is this terrible conflict between, in the West, up, up until now, it may have changed now, between trying to protect and do the right thing in political terms and then a kind of spinelessness when it comes to backing up in military terms, and maybe it's you know a, a realism in coming to back up in political terms, and this has caught the West, I think, caught them between two stools. Uh, so the the lessons should be learnt on both sides, not just on the Russian side. I know you have other meetings to attend to today, uh, and uh, I don't want to keep you uh, overly long. 
but you've 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 outlined problems and you've also hinted at some future possibilities, not the least of which is a long extended war to be, as well as lessons learned. And I'll just I I don't want you to answer this because I want to get a hold of you in a while to talk about this as well. What are the lessons that China is learning from this conflict vis-a-vis its own ideas about dealing with the island of Taiwan? And what is Russia learning about its own circumstances in dealing with its own enclave of Kaliningrad, which happens to now be virtually surrounded by NATO nations, all of whom are really unhappy with the way Russia has been behaving. We've been talking with Greg Mills, uh, Brenthurst Foundation, a man who has seen warfare in many places up front and close, but maintains a scholar's eye in evaluating the nature of the conflict as well as its political, its its economic, uh, its geopolitical uh, outcomes and circumstances, and somebody uh, we have all come to read frequently uh, in his many books, articles, columns, and commentaries. Greg, thanks very much for taking some time for us. You're in Lusaka, and I'm glad we could make and hold the connection. Thank you very much. Always a a pleasure, Brooks, and uh, look forward to trying to answer your question on China and also trying to answer the question as, as to how this will all end. Thank you very much, Greg.